Thank you, Gary, and worship team and church for that blessing and encouragement and song this morning. As we begin our time together, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. As I've had the great privilege and blessing of teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes to our young people for the past year and a half, and even in our home group co-teaching with Tim as he's led through the study of Proverbs, God has truly done a work in my heart. God has truly stirred up this message of the book of Ecclesiastes in my heart in a powerful way. And as I sought to pick one passage of scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes to share with you all this morning, God kept bringing me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. The first few verses here, especially verses one through six. Let's read these together. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. One who watches the wind will not sow, and one who looks at the clouds will not harvest. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes everything. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether one or the other will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. This book of Ecclesiastes gives us a different view of life. This book gives us a truly different perspective of life. And as different as it is, we find it throughout our study to be a proper view of life. God's word here is given to us through Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. A great king with many riches, with the opportunity to explore and experience life in ways we could only dream of even in our life today where the world is at our fingertips. And God uses Solomon in his perspective to give us this teaching about life from a slightly different angle than the rest of the Bible, this pessimistic sort of view. There are two main themes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. One is this word, hevel, and this phrase, under the sun. Hevel, under the sun. We see this in chapter one, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all the work which he does under the sun? And the word hevel is a Hebrew word. It's often translated meaningless or vanity, as we just read. Even more accurately, a grasping of the wind, a chasing after the wind, smoke, the word vapor. This word hevel is used almost 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So to rightly understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we must understand the word hevel. The English word meaningless is okay, but not sufficient. That would be to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes as if the author was an atheist, as if God doesn't exist, as if he wasn't there. And that's simply not the case. God is all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, often in the background, but God is ever-present. God is all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. By no means is he not present. The word vanity is good, but not complete either. There's two words we today understand vanity to be, neither of which is helpful, the word pride, and a station where a woman does her makeup. 
Neither of those words grasp the full meaning, this full entire concept of the word hevel. The word temporary or fleeting comes to mind when we read Ecclesiastes 11, verse 8. This idea of life under the sun, that vapor, that smoke, means temporary, fleeting. Ecclesiastes 8.14 tells us it's more of an enigma. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. Sometimes frustrating. One of the best definitions I've come across for this hevel is the word airy nothingness. Now I challenge you to read Ecclesiastes with the word vanity as airy nothingness. Airy nothingness says of airy nothingness. All is airy nothingness says the preacher. It would get a little wordy but it gets that point across, right? This airy nothingness, this hard to grasp thing, this thing that if you bottled up smoke, if you bottled up vapor, what would you actually have? Could you sell it? Could you give it away? Could you really touch it? And we're given this phrase, airy nothingness, as we read through Ecclesiastes. And the main message is given us here, even at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, that Solomon experiments with all of life, and we find the big message, the main idea at the very end, that the end of the matter is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. Throughout this experiment, we find that all of life is unpredictable, sometimes frustrating, painful, difficult, and also 100% under God's control and not our own. Solomon tells us that what we have to do is to enjoy eating, drinking and toiling. This life that God's given to us, all that pertains to it. Simply put, Solomon's telling us to enjoy life, every single thing that God gives to you. This is Ecclesiastes' view of life. Again, under the sun, all is hevel under the sun. Under the sun, everything is temporary. Under the sun, everything is vapor. Under the sun, everything is smoke. Here today and gone tomorrow. Here on earth, it's made evident by the seasons. They change. By the generations that come and go. Chapters 1 and 2 speak highly to that. The generations come and go, and the generation forgets the former. The new generation forgets the past. When you take this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, you keep finding things that are hevel. And it's literally everything. Everything you do, everything you touch, everything you see, Everything you feel, nothing's excluded. All is hevel. This airy nothingness. But we have a purpose for this message, right? Ecclesiastes is lumped in with the wisdom literature. It finds itself among Job and Proverbs, these books that we love to read and gain wisdom from, right? Proverbs is exactly that. It's a book of promises often, but even more so probabilities, It's the way that life ought to go. It's the way that life should go. This is how things should happen. The book of Job, well, you know the story of Job. Job gives us a window, a glimpse into a righteous man getting what the wicked deserve. This is what Ecclesiastes 7 talks about. Bad things happen to good people. That is hevel. That is frustrating. That is airy nothingness. And Ecclesiastes plays more of a negative role in the Bible. This is the skeptic's view of life. This is Eeyore's perspective. What about when life's not all sunshine and rainbows? This is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like a wet blanket. You perhaps use that figure of speech. I had to look it up because I was like, why do we say wet blanket? It comes from 
uh, history where even cowboy days, right, cowboy adventures or a cattle run, a cattle drive, the cooks would throw a wet blanket on the fire to put it out, to smother the fire, to suffocate the fire, right? It has that idea of letting no oxygen in, and I use that illustration on purpose because Solomon here lets no positivity in under the sun. He leaves no room, not even a notion of any gain in this passage of scripture. And God gives us this message for a reason. Ecclesiastes 12:11 says this book is like a prodding, like a goad used by a shepherd provoking his sheep to action, provoking us to action. God is provoking us to action. Shepherds would poke and prod their sheep away from bad fields and towards greener pastures, away from danger and towards safety, away from a storm and towards shelter. In that same way, this book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us away from something, this hevel of life under the sun, this pursuit of life for gain as Solomon goes through and towards something far better. Chapter 10 tells us that folly is everywhere and it gives us instruction on how to live wisely. Now we come to chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, and we are continuing to learn how to live wisely. We've seen everything under the sun up to this point, and we see Hevel throughout the entire book. Hevel is everywhere. Hevel is in everything. And the ultimate Hevel this book faces us with is death. The unavoidable, looming, inescapable, inevitable reality of death. Ecclesiastes 8 says, No one has authority over the wind to restrain the wind, nor authority over the day of death. We can't control the wind. We certainly can't control the day we die, how we die. We have no authority over that. But because of this, through staring the face, staring in the face of death, through that lens of Ecclesiastes, we truly are shown how to live. And that is with the end in mind. In light of death, how should we truly live this life? We should live, number one, generously sowing constantly. We should live generously sowing constantly. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11 says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. The teacher here commends grasping at many opportunities. This is far different than pursuing all of life or one part of life for gain, for profit, as Solomon went to. That's the way we naturally attack life. That's the normal way that we approach life is what can I get out of it? What's in it for me? We learn throughout the book that ultimately there is nothing to get out of this life. We live this vapor of a life and it's over. No matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter how educated, no matter how popular, no matter how successful, there is one outcome of this vain life, this airy nothingness, this impossible to grasp thing called life, and that is death. In the beautiful poetry of chapter three, the Bible tells us that there's a time for everything under the sun. God says there is a time and a purpose for everything under the sun. God has made everything beautiful, verse 11, in its time including verse 2, this inevitable, inescapable, unavoidable reality of death, this attacker, this prowling mystery. We all will die. But if we learn anything from the teaching of Ecclesiastes, it's that death is not the end of all things. 
Death is the end of what we know, the end of things under the sun. Death should not be this driver to pessimistic, suicidal depression, but actually the gateway to complete and full living, the lens of which we should actually look at life to be able to attack it with joy and vigor and not despair. It is this window that gives us a glimpse of what is to come, what we were created for, eternity. If there were a uh, life above the sun, Ecclesiastes part two, I would venture to guess it would say something along the lines of blessing upon blessings, all is blessing. Blessed, how blessed we are above the sun. What gain does man have for all of his toil above the sun? Everything, a tangible reality to be grasped, not this untangible, non-graspable reality, this airy nothingness, smoke in a jar. Not vanity of vanities, blessings upon blessings, blessings flow. I have one in each hand, two in each hand, three innumerable blessings above the sun. It'd be God making straight what he had made crooked. Of course, we don't have Ecclesiastes chapter part two. That's what's unsaid. But what is said, what is written in God's word, the message here for us today is that in light of death, this inescapable reality, we are told to cast our bread upon the waters for you will find it again after many days there are many differing opinions here some say it regards to literal trade or commerce evidenced by solomon's ships his importing and exporting of many riches and many goods it could be instructing us here about real investments one of them may make you money someday so diversify invest in them all you don't know what will happen Some have referenced that same thing to friendship in regards to friends. Don't burn bridges because you might need a favor from someone someday. It could be meaning actual bread. It could not be bread, but the image of bread being all of our earthly possessions. The bottom line here is that we are being told to do something with what we have. The most natural interpretation is that one has bread, one should use it. One has bread, one should give it away. If you have bread, use it. If you have bread, share it. God has given it to you. What are you doing with it? Solomon says to cast it upon the waters. And verse 2, to divide your portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Of course, the number seven in scripture is the perfect number. Or the number of completion. It's often been called God's number the number of divine completion shown to us from the very beginning when God created the world in seven days, including a day of rest, which happened to be on day seven. The number seven appears in scripture over 700 times. Jacob works for Laban for seven years for the daughter he marries, and then another seven years for the daughter he actually wanted to marry. Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? We see seven in Revelation in regards to the seals, the trumpets, etc. This is the number of divine completion. What is the preacher, Solomon, trying to tell us by dividing our portion to seven or even to eight? He's saying to give it all and then give some more. He's saying to be generous, to be overly generous, to be crazy generous, to be extravagant in the way that you give 
the way that you live this life that God has given to you. To not fret or worry about it or hold on to it so tight because we don't control the outcome. God is in control over whether what prospers or what fails. We are just to be faithful with what we have, to keep casting it upon the waters. In light of death, we're to live generously, sowing constantly. Verses 3 and 4 continue to instruct us how to live in light of death. In light of death, we should live in the fear of God, not the unknown. This first phrase of, chapter, of verse 3 gives us a picture of how we should live. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth. The ESV says they empty themselves on the earth. If the clouds are full, they dump rain. God says, do thou likewise. Be thou generous. Give of your abundance. Be giving with everything that God's given to you. Pile goodness on others. Your blessings. Yes, money often, but happiness. God's love. Blessing upon blessing. Sure, the most direct application we often go to is money. But how much more is there than that that we can give back to God? What endless ways can we find to be generous, to divide our portion to seven or to eight? What overabundance do we have that we can give back to God to share with others? The New Testament tells us if we have two of something to give one away. What do you have two of today that you can give more to God? How much time do we have? How much effort do we have? I'm often tempted to say in my busy life, I don't have another hour to give. And maybe on the rare occasion, that's actually true. But how much more time do we really have to give God, to give our church, to give in service, to give to others, to give back to our creator who gave us everything in the first place, this life under the sun, Navy SEAL Rourke Denver always asked the audience, well, most typically asked the audience to raise their hands as high as they can. Would you do that for me now? Raise your hands as high as you can. And then he asked them to raise them a little higher. Yes, thank you. That's what I thought. Now, every single one of you was able to raise just a little bit higher. Just a little bit higher. Maybe someone was sneaking in from the first service and they gave me everything the first time. But God is calling us here through the gospel of Ecclesiastes, through the book of Ecclesiastes, to give everything, to reach a little higher. Verse 3 continues, Whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. For those literary scholars among us, verses 3 and 4 create a chiasm. This chiastic structure appears often in Scripture in the Psalms, and it's sort of like a mirror, the way that the words are played. The words or the concepts of a sentence are repeated in reverse order and create this stylized writing effect that can be very helpful. In this case, rain, wind, wind, rain. Read with me verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, evidence of wind, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds, the rain, will not reap. This is truly beautiful poetry. John Gill's exposition is helpful here. He says, Who before he sows his seed is careful to observe where the wind is, from what corner it blows, and forbears sowing until it is down or changes, lest it should be troublesome unto him in sowing 
or blow away his seed and waits for a better season. Such a man may lose his seed time and never sow at all, and his grain in his barn may be devoured by vermin or be destroyed by one accident or another. And so he may lose both his seed and his crop. He continues, He may never sow, so it is impossible that he should reap. And if he sows, and when his grain is ripe and forbears to reap because of the clouds, lest his grain should be wet, he may never reap at all. If he puts off giving till such an affliction is removed from him and his family, or that is grown up, or such an estate is obtained, or he has gotten to such an amount of riches, if nothing is done till all difficulties are removed, no good thing will ever be done. If nothing is done till all difficulties are removed, no good thing will ever be done. Verse 3 is so wise, so simple, yet so beautiful. And we might glaze past this verse, just as we might glaze past the whole book of Ecclesiastes and say, hmm, that's interesting. What does that have to do with anything? That's why I don't let my kids watch Winnie the Pooh, because I don't like Eeyore. What does that tell us? Read it again. Look how it flows. I would encourage you to read it over the long weekend that you have. Wind, rain, rain, wind, a storm comes and blows down a tree. If it falls to the north or the south, there it lies, right in your path. Imagine the agrarian culture that Solomon had to have been speaking to. The group of farmers, men and women, that would say as he's saying that, yep, that's happened to me, preacher. A tree fell right down on my crops the other day, right in the path leading back to our home, right on our home. Trees falling all around them, and they had no control over it. They just had to deal with it just as we have no control over the trees falling in our lives. Would these farmers go around it? Would they go over it? Would they dig under it? Try to move it out of the way? Chop it up in little pieces? This was the work, the toil God had given them under the sun, unexpected and difficult as it was. You all have trees falling in your life, things you didn't ask for, things you can't control, things you didn't plan. And we're encouraged here by these words that this is all from God. There are no surprises for God. Again, Ecclesiastes is not a book without God. All of this is under God's sovereign control. There's nothing outside of it. And we can't control the wind. We can't control the rain. We don't dictate what can or will happen. In light of that, choose action rather than idleness. In light of that, trust God. One day, the clouds will dump rain. Another day, a drought. One day, trees will stand tall. Another, trees will fall. You can't predict life's events, when God will rain down blessings or when trials will descend upon you. Ecclesiastes tells us to see the toil of a tree falling as God's work for us that he has given to us to enjoy, the same as eating and drinking all these things that are repeated in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, and chapter 9, telling us that all these things are from God and we are to enjoy life. It is this verse here that prompted perhaps my favorite title for today's message, If a tree falls in the forest, God knows. 
And that's not the start of a bad joke, right? That is fact. God absolutely knows. God knew before it fell. God knows when it fell, how it fell, why it fell, where it fell, where it landed. And God continues to know about all things for all time. God knows about every single tree that falls in your life. And I argue that this is the main message from Ecclesiastes, summed up for us in chapter 12, that he will bring everything into judgment, both the evil and the good. He will bring all things into judgment, not me, not you. God is God. He is sovereignly in control. We all have trees falling around us and cannot control the difficulties of life. You can try and anticipate it, as James encourages us, but there will always be unexpected events, trials, twists, and turns under the sun. Life usually follows a particular pattern. Again, we see that looking at the seasons of life, looking at the seasons in weather. It usually rains, except for here in Arizona. But who can really predict how much or when it will flood? We can see the signs on the road, and that'll help us anticipate it. But who's really prepared for when it floods? Who's really prepared for that? We like to plan our lives. We like to be prepared. Some of you probably plan your day out, your weeks, your months, maybe some of you even your years. But do we hold that loosely and prepare to be surprised, to prepare to, for a tree to fall? Do we plan to let God be in control of the outcome and not hold so tightly this version of what profit should come? When we realize we cannot plan for everything, we should live life differently. We should depend on God more. We should acknowledge him in the unknown. We should trust him more. In light of Ecclesiastes, in light of death, we should trust God more. We should be more thankful when trees aren't falling. We should be thankful that when a tree falls, it's not up to us. God is in control. I think we'd enjoy eating, drinking, and toiling more with that view of life, the good gifts of life even more. In light of death, we're told to live generously, sowing constantly, and we're being told to obey God, whether it's in good business practices or philanthropy or charity, to be good at what we do. We're told to excel in our toil. What God has given to you to do, do it as to the Lord. Cast it upon the waters. In light of death, we're also told to fear God, not the unknown. We're being told to take this life as a gift from the hand of God, to hold it loosely before him, the all-knowing, sovereign creator. You do not know if a tree will fall. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. To me, that says, I better sell chicken while I can. That says, I better give it my all when I preach. Verse 5 continues to prod us and provoke us to this truth that God is God and he alone is in control over all this tree-falling, heaven-filled world, which to us is often a mystery, often confusing, often frustrating, even painful. So much so that in all of Solomon's striving, in all of Solomon's experimenting, even he in all of his wisdom could not figure it all out under the sun. He says in chapter 8, verse 17, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. No one. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, 
They cannot comprehend it. Look at verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes everything. In light of death, we are to rest in God's sovereignty, the one who does know. You cannot understand, I cannot understand how the bones grow in the womb, how the spirit forms. Humankind in all of its scientific advances and all of our understanding of human anatomy will always be ignorant of the way of a growing fetus, of the way that the spirit comes to the womb. We can never explain the way of the wind. Have you read Job lately? Speaking of wisdom literature, at the end, Elihu speaks and rightly points Job to God's majesty. Chapter 37, verse 5 says, He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 11 and 12, Elihu says, The clouds and lightning accomplish all that he commands. And then in verse 19, he tells Job, he asks Job, How can we take him in the court of law? How can we bring God? How can we question him? What would we say to him? What would we even challenge him with? We are in darkness with little glimpses of light. We have small windows of light to the grander picture. And then in chapter 38, God speaks out of a whirlwind to Job. And one of the most powerful, most epic passages of all of scripture, he says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. And this continues on through the end of the chapter and chapter 39 isn't any gentler. God says, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Does the ox serve you, Job? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom? Does the eagle mount up by your command? Then it's punctuated in chapter 40 where God says, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And what is Job's response? Puts his hand on his mouth. Who am I? God, I am insignificant. What shall I say to you? God is essentially asking Job, why are you questioning me? If you don't know what I know, I know all the answers to all the questions, Job. Tell me what you know. And Solomon's exhorting us, even that in all of his wisdom, he couldn't make sense of it all. Now, this is not an excuse for bad theology. This is not a reason to cease striving and trying to understand God's word. We know that all of scripture is profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
I have a copy of the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, on my shelf at home that I got at my high school graduation. In the front flap, the teacher who gave it to me, also my second mom, wrote in there, read your Bible every day, it has all the answers. I firmly believe that to be true. Does that mean we're privy to know all things above the sun? That we're privy to have all understanding of things even under the sun? Clearly not when the wisest who ever lived struggled to comprehend it, struggled to make sense of it all as he experimented with every single part of life. But take comfort in that. We are to take comfort in the fact that we don't know, that it's confusing, that we're frustrated and even painful sometimes, but ultimately we are to be comforted with the not knowing, even those why questions. Doesn't mean it's wrong to ask those questions. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask those questions. It just means that at the end of the day, we rest in God's ultimate authority and wisdom. And that we fear God more than the unknown. We rest in him who is the giver of all wisdom, the giver of this book of Ecclesiastes. The one who holds everything in his hand and calls all things into judgment, both the evil and the good. This passage really is calling us to contentment. To be content even when a tree falls. Ecclesiastes calls us to surrender our control or our thought of control to the one who truly is control over all. To the one who created us and placed us here under the sun and who has an eternal plan for us. Imagine how silly we seem sometimes going before God, challenging him with what we think we know about life, with how we think things should go about life. It's as if you went into PetSmart, stay with me, and saw a fish in a tank, a little goldfish, who has already been placed there by the all-knowing authorities of PetSmart, who rescued it from its little pond in nature, perhaps put it in a tank, created this habitat for it with all their scientific understanding of how a goldfish should thrive. They regulate the temperature, they regulate the light, they balance the chemicals, they give him food, and you come along and purchase little goldfish. And you take it home and you create an even more amazing world for this little goldfish. You build a mansion for him. You put fun little things in there like a sunken pirate ship for him to explore. Maybe you put more friends in there. You continue to balance the light, the chemicals, to feed him two or three times a day. I don't know how many times you need to feed a goldfish. And the fish is swimming around, and a couple days later, he pops his little head out of the tank and says, hey, what's going on up there? Why am I in here? You know, all I can do is swim? Why can't I fly like the birds out there? Why don't I eat steak? I see that juicy cow you're eating. Why can't I get some of that? And what a dumb illustration that is, right? What a silly picture that is, but it gets the point across of how we treat God, how often we treat life, how often maybe the reason we breeze past the book of Ecclesiastes is to not wrestle with the realities that life is not in our control, but in the sovereign control of our creator. God asks Job like we would ask the little goldfish, why are you questioning me? Don't you know where you came from? Do you know where you came from? What's next, little goldfish? What's after? Job asks, or Solomon asks that question multiple times. Who can tell a man what happens when he dies? 
And that's not a question of unknown, God hasn't told us. It's just who really understands from a human level, this finite world that we live in, what's next? And we trust God and what he's told us from scripture. We rest in his sovereignty. And I admit that silliness in the illustration. Back to the biblical wisdom of verse 6, the Bible says, Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether the one or the other will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Continue to cast it upon the waters. Continue to invest your entire life. The biblical wisdom tells us there's risk to everything we do. We don't know what will succeed or what will fail. We certainly aim for that success. We certainly aim for the prosperous, victorious gain. But more often, it is the latter that takes us by surprise. Sometimes a tree falls. Being afraid of this failure can paralyze us or make us pause. Fear of the Lord should help us to embrace the unknown and to do what we do with vigor and great energy as to the Lord who ultimately is in charge of these results, the increase or otherwise. Perhaps you've heard the old adage, work as if it's all up to you, pray as if it's all up to God. What that tells us is let God be God and you work. Toil. We continue to work. Don't begrudge it. Don't complain about it. Love it and be content throughout all of life. In Luke 12, Jesus tells us of a rich man who tore down his old barns just to build new ones, to store his surplus, to store his extra. What gain did that man seek? What gain did that man actually realize? We're told that God required his soul of him that very day and reminded him of what Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 and 19 tell us. What's the point of storing it all up if a natural disaster comes? What's the point of saving it all and building this legacy or inheritance to pass down to someone that you don't know or are in control of if they're a fool or wise? What are you doing with it right now? Yes, we need to plan. Yes, we need to strategize. Yes, we should be wise, faithful stewards of what God's given to us and look in the long run But what are we doing with it right now? What are we doing with the bread that God has given to us to steward wisely today? Again, not just money. How about our attention to God? How about our devotion to God? How about our ministry life? How about our affection to the body of believers? How much more can, should we give to God? This book disrupts how we think about our life. This book disrupts how we think about our stuff, doesn't it? our plans, our time, our life. Our behavior should change as this disruption occurs, that we never can truly grasp this life in light of death, the end of this hevel. How should we live then? We should live generously, sowing constantly. We should live without fear of the unknown, and we should live resting in God's sovereignty. The ultimate hevel of this life, death, can often lead us to shy away from life, to crawl in our hole, to have that Eeyore mentality, to lack action, to not experience what God's given to us. Not to eat, drink, and be merry, for you don't know what tomorrow brings, but to eat, drink, and enjoy every single thing God's given to you as the gift that he's given to you. And not just for ourselves, but to take action for the sake of others, to invest or save not just for your retirement, but for a blessing or a bonus for someone else to buy someone else a car, whatever it may be. 
to give back to God what he's given to us. And to be thankful for it. Cast it upon the waters. This is what Solomon's preaching here, wise living. And we're to start by giving God our life. If you haven't laid down your life at the feet of Jesus and surrendered your wills, your will to his and repented of your sin and became a child of the king, certainly God's calling you to do that through the gospel in Ecclesiastes. For those of you who have surrendered to the king, continue to surrender to him, continue to bow to the Lord, continue to pursue even this very beginning of wisdom, the fear of God, keeping his commandments. Surrender this life that we so often call ours to him. Give up all of your life and all you hope to do and be in this world and cast it upon the waters for him to do with what he wills. And be ready for a tree to fall and trust in him sovereignly always. That's what we're asking to, being asked to do in the book of Ecclesiastes. Quoting the book, Living Life Backward by David Gibson, he says, there is an inevitability to life. The clouds say it's going to rain. There's also a randomness to life. Trees blow down here and there, and there's nothing we can do about it. Some people see only inevitability. This is the way things are, and if we keep doing the right thing, success is guaranteed. Others tend to see only risks and the potential for failure, and so they don't do anything. But I think that the preacher is prodding us again with this one main message. The thing that is worse than either success or failure in life is failing to live life in the first place. Being paralyzed by fear of failure, we never try anything. Driven by the desire to succeed, we focus on only one thing. The message is this, life is gift, not gain. Give up your pursuit of profit from your toil and instead seek to enjoy the things that God has given you for what they are. And as you do that, you will know some reward. This profit that you seek. As we close, let us be reminded even what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You only have one life. The book of Ecclesiastes makes that abundantly clear. Live this life for God's glory. The fullest, live to the fullest for his gain, not our own. We don't know what will happen, what will prosper or not. So keep sowing, keep planting, keep toiling. Keep casting your bread upon the waters and be ready for the unknown, but fear God and his wisdom and his sovereignty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grateful to share what you have continued to teach me through the book of Ecclesiastes. God, I pray that this message would uh, stir us up to even encourage one another to give our lives, to lay it down as a living sacrifice for your honor and for your glory. And God, that we would even navigate life with brothers and sisters in Christ with that aim. Thank you for this different perspective. Thank you for Solomon's view, even here at the end of his life. 
God, thank you that through all the turmoil, through all the unknown, through all the unexpected twists and turns of life, you are still God. You have been God and you always will be God. Help us to trust in that, to rest in your sovereignty this morning. And even as we go to the communion table together, God, may we continue to reflect on the ultimate sacrifice, the life that you have blessed us with by giving your son to die for us and take the punishment of our sins. God, may we consistently and constantly reflect on the good things that you have given to us and to know where they came from and to praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.